This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending February 17th, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of CRE and Advisory Services. This week, a parade of Fed speakers with more hawkish comments after a slew of economic data point to a resilient economy. Both consumer and wholesale inflation came in hotter than expected for January, and retail sales jumped 3% last month. And despite more layoff headlines, monthly jobless claims are below 200,000 for the fifth straight week. Manis, it seems that market watchers are now talking about a no-landing scenario for the economy where we avoid a slowdown altogether. Well, it certainly seems that way. The resiliency of the economy as reflected in the data is really something. Two weeks ago, it was a spectacular jobs report, CPI slightly hotter than expected, not earth shattering. PPI today, much hotter than expected. Retail sales, uh, a very healthy margin between expectations and the actual print. So really across the board, it's hard to find anything other than layoffs that are nicks in the economy. And I think that that has gotten the Fed concerned once again. I think that we saw a small window of a couple of weeks where Jerome Powell sounded a little bit more dovish, talked about disinflationary trends starting to come in. That didn't last very long. And today we had the Fed presidents from Cleveland in St. Louis, both really take the hawkish line, referring to things like the need for 50 basis point hikes in the future, which at this point would push short-term rates into the mid fives, five and a half, 575, something like that. And you know, at, at some point, these higher rates will kick in, but right now it's really hard to imagine anything apocalyptic in terms of the slowing of the US economy based on the most recent data. Yeah, I think if you look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks, the market has been resilient. Consumer, you know, retail sales jumped 3% in January. It says as consumers, you know, boosted spending on vehicles, furniture, clothing, dining out. So just more signs of economic growth. You know, if you look at, um, you know, you mentioned Cleveland, Manus on the Fed talk. If you look at a couple of these other Fed members, Dallas Fed President Lori Logan anticipates Fed will need to continue gradually raising rates until there's convincing evidence. New York Federal Reserve President John Williams said uh, getting inflation to the 2% target could take a few years. So I think, you know, people are starting to see with some of the labor numbers, the spending numbers, all these other things, there's nothing really that's, uh, that's slowing down the economy, even uh, the threat of aliens. If we look at the housing market, housing markets did bear the brunt of the interest rates and they haven't fully recovered. As we know, January housing starts fell to about 1.13 million, which is the lowest since 2020. There's been five months in a row uh, where there's uh, been drops this month in January. The drop was larger than expected, but maybe some good news. Home builder sentiment improved. I think we talked about this about two months ago and the index was down to maybe in the 30 range. It looks like uh, for this last month, the index rose and it's 42 in February. So the biggest jump in a positive way since 2020. So it's kind of a confusing time in the marketplace. Consumers are still spending. Investors are still investing. Fed's still raising rates. I guess we'll see what happens this next month. You know, I've been trying to stay very consistent over the last year about where I think this is going. And, and my thought process all along has been 
soft slash softish landing. And I don't think that we're necessarily out of the woods. Uh, I think that the likelihood of a really hard landing gets more and more remote every day. But you look at a couple of things, you know, I'll, I'll throw out three things that still concern me um, in the sense that there will be other challenges in 2023. Number one is that curve inversion, which remains near record highs. You know, the, the bond market is pricing in a sizable recession. We're now at about 85 basis points of inversion between the two and the 10. And that's not an optimistic view from the bond market's perspective. Uh, point number two is, is that we continue to see enormous amounts of layoffs. Ernst & Young, I think this week, or KPMG, one of them announced several hundred layoffs, 700 layoffs, something like that. Um, not something you see every day. The accounting firms are like the post office, right? They show up every day, they have work to do, and um, the work never trickles off. So when you see them starting to to lay off, you're, you're starting to think, wow, this is a little bit bigger than I thought. And then lastly, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, the sheer number of people giving back space for sublease or throwing in the towel on offices or other properties continues to remain sizable and is growing actually. So uh, a couple of big moves in that uh, area this week, and we'll touch upon all of that over the next hour. A couple of things that I think we will probably be watching closely is that jobs number. And one of the data points that stood out this past week was the total household debt hit the record number of 16.9 trillion, which suggests that Households are using more of their credit cards uh, and other debt to fund their lifestyle, whatever whatever that might be. The concerning thing, obviously, is that these balances that they're carrying may be tolerable when they have jobs. If you don't have a job and as the interest rates keep rising, that becomes a burden. And oh, by the way, if you forgot, many people are not paying for student loans right now. So all of that could come home to roost. Yeah, we'll see. I, I don't know if they're taking their clues from the federal government or not, right? We we keep piling on more and more debt year after year, and the deficits keep getting bigger and longer and higher and more expensive. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the tell, right? If the federal government's doing it, how bad can it be? But I think your point is a good one, Martha, that at, at some point, this has to lead to uh, a slowdown in the U.S. economy to some degree, right? The The size of the debt that people are carrying the higher cost that they're enduring at the supermarket or at restaurants, and uh, eventually layoffs once those those start to really hit the unemployment number bottom line, you know that that could uh, leave a mark. Yeah, if you look at the credit card balances, they increased nearly six point six percent to Martha's point, nine hundred eighty six billion during the quarter, which was the highest quarterly growth on record, and that's according to New York Fed data that goes back to nineteen ninety nine. And yet we saw some earnings that show that the travel industry has had some healthy signs. Yeah, I think uh, the, the business travels definitely up. The flights I've been on the last couple of months, and there's been a lot of them, folks. I mean, we're talking double-digit flights here. Nobody's being nicer now post-COVID and travel. Everyone still wants to rush to the front of the plane as soon as it lands. And I saw almost a fist fight break out last night when I flew into New York. So kind of interesting there. But it seems like the flights are full. The airports when you're waiting are full. The lounges when you stop at the airport are full. 
And I think some of the the earnings, you know, show show that travel bookings for TripAdvisor said fourth quarter revenue surged 47 percent due to strong demand for city tours and hotel stays. That was a beat on expectations. Marriott International beat fourth quarter earnings. Um, they offered upbeat 23 guidance and mid robust bookings. RevPAR, or what uh, we call revenue per available room, rose 5% with compared to 2019 pre-pandemic levels, was 29% higher than fourth quarter of 21. So it's really nice to see some of these you know, hotels coming out post-pandemic and putting up revenue numbers higher than even the pre-pandemic level. So you know, that's one thing I can tell you from being on the road so much. Hotel prices have definitely gotten higher. You get... Uh, a little bit less service while you stay. They don't clean the room every day in most instances, uh, but the cost is definitely, you know, higher than it's been since I've been traveling. I'll feel we're back when you can really get a newspaper in every airport. I'm still a hard copy guy, and it irks me no end if you can't find the Barons or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post in that newsstand. It's uh, it's just not the same having something to read on your lap when you're taken off. And a couple of negative stories we saw this week, I hate to use the word fallout, but that's the only word I can think of right now for the uh, Ohio train derailment that was actually a couple of weeks ago. And there were a number of environmental concerns after a toxic pillar of smoke hung over the town of East Palestine. Yeah, it's a environmental disaster. It could become a humanitarian disaster, depending on the impact of these chemicals that are in the air. Uh, certainly there's people in that area that have been complaining about, you know, sore throats and coughs and burning skin and things like that. It's a terrible scene. You know, it's, you hope that not only is it contained and put out quickly, you hope that the residue remains in that area and doesn't trickle into places you know, let's not forget, so, you know, Pittsburgh is only about 50 miles away, right? Akron and Boardman, Ohio, and, and other places are not that far away. You just hope that this dissipates very quickly. And the, uh, the impact on the, the citizens there is not uh, catastrophic. And so our research team will be doing some exposure analysis for the vicinity of the East Palestine, Ohio. If you're interested in, in seeing what that looks like, give us a shout out and we'll uh, we'll reach out to you. And the other story was Tuesday morning, the discount home goods retailer filed for chapter 11 and is looking to shutter about half its footprint in stores. Yeah, that's the third one in recent weeks that has gone down the path of filing or refiling for bankruptcy. Well, I guess Bed Bath & Beyond got a, a reprieve, but it was on the precipice uh, and may still be there. Uh, but Bed Bath & Beyond, Party City, and now Tuesday morning, certainly it doesn't feel like 2018 all over again. That year, I think we had 30 or 40 or 50 retailers file for bankruptcy across the spectrum. But this does hurt the retail market. The retail market in many areas, especially the mall space, has never fully recovered from the impact of e-commerce, COVID, and other things. And you hope what is uh, a couple of nicks doesn't become a rout over time. I don't think it will be. I think companies have spent a long, hard trek over the last five years, right-sizing their footprints, getting rid of stores that were not performing. I think they're more resilient now than they were in 2017, but time will tell. Yeah, I don't know if you guys noticed, but they filed bankruptcy on Tuesday. 
Um, so that was kind of interesting. And it was the second bankruptcy in three years for uh, for Tuesday morning. I think they want to close up to 265 stores based on profitability. And Lonnie is fresh from the Mortgage Bankers Association Multifamily Finance Convention and Expo that was in San Diego. So let's hear what the sentiment was. And I know, Manis, you probably talked to a few folks that were fresh from there as well. Obviously, folks were going there with uh, a number of headwinds that they were probably dealing with and be interesting to hear from you what people were saying. Uh, it was definitely an interesting conversation, uh, Martha, at the conference. The The overarching sentiment was similar to Crefc, where there was a sense of reality given the current market conditions, but optimism maybe around the second half of 23. So it seemed like most of the sessions, you know, people were, were hopeful that we get through the next six or seven months and things pick back up. But what was interesting when you talk to people one-off, face-to-face, the sentiment was much more pragmatic in the sense that they were understanding if the Fed doesn't pivot, you know, what's going to change between now and six months from now? And is that really going to mean the market's going to be moving and there's going to be more issuance and more demand, et cetera? So it's kind of a somber conference. I, I heard there was about 2,400 people there, though, so it was very well attended. There was definitely a lot of people down in the lobbies, a lot of discussions going on as if deals were getting done. So that was good. Some of the notable highlights from the conference, you know, everyone was in agreement, values are down. You know, the number that we saw thrown around is about 24% of all CRE loans are scheduled to mature in 23 and 24, which we put a lot of research out here at TREP over that time period, uh, looking at the upcoming maturities. Originations obviously are down. Um, it looks like the MBA VP of Research and Economics was forecasting about a 15% drop in CRE lending, followed by 32% jump in 2024. That was from Jamie Woodwell. Um, and the MBA was projecting a 7% increase in origination for 25 when looking out a couple of years. So really interesting. I did get to moderate a panel there on construction lending. Um, so there were some some insights there on the construction side in terms of you know, loan to cost, it seemed like a lot of the lenders are capping that at about 50%, requiring, in some cases, a little bit larger contingency. You know, there was still optimism on the construction side, even though they aren't really able to pencil a lot of deals right now. They said, um, you know, land costs in 21 and 22 really skyrocketed and have caused a, a slight, you know, challenge for them in getting some deals done. But just like any other conference, it seems like the good deals are getting done. Some transactions are still happening. Sponsor uh, credit is still important. Um, so overall, it was a good conference. I think a reflection of what we talk about here week to week. There's some green shoots, but there's definitely some crabgrass still hanging around. Yeah, I didn't have the pleasure of being there. I know that the NBA guys run a great conference and we've had them on the podcast from time to time. So all my my intake for the last couple of days was by texts, people sitting in airports or listening to sessions, just kind of shooting me color from there. And the, and the two things that came up on my screen most frequently were real drop-off in originations now and for the next six months, which kind of echoes what you were saying, Lonnie. And then uh, on one of the panels, apparently there was this belief, whatever uh, um, analysis, that values are down across the board 25% at this point, which if, if you're using that as your benchmark, because I went back to some of my contacts and I said, was that a general number or was that a, for a specific property type? And they said that was kind of across the board. And if you're thinking 25% is 
is an average number, then for some of the weaker stuff, you got to think it's 30, 35%. If you're talking about dented office, uh, short rent roll, roll office, places where there's uh, excess sublease inventory. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out during the rest of the year. Turning to office, we saw this week in uh, Cranes, New York, that about 13 million square feet of office space is under construction. But despite that, there's some challenges. One of the most recent stories regarding that was uh, in the New York Times by Stephanos Chen. Bornado Chief Executive Stephen Roth was voicing his concerns about the future of the Penn Station development and other projects, calling the prospect of new construction almost impossible because of tight lending. Yeah, I think that, you know, the headline 13 million square feet, is that what you said, Martha? Yes. That was the number. That's that's just an extraordinary amount. Something tells me that the new stuff, even though it's it's a lot of inventory kind of in the planning stages to some degree, it will probably do okay. What we've seen over the last year is these new projects, new developments have attracted tenants from other places. If I'm reading this number the chilling aspect of it for me is the guys that are in B's and C's or even A minuses, right? Really nice office towers on 6th Avenue that certainly aren't B, but are just dated and don't have all the amenities that the newer stuff have. I, I think that that's really where the rubber hits the road. That would be quite frightening for me. Places on Lexington Avenue, 6th Avenue, perhaps Park Avenue near the JP Morgan office, things like that would be concerning for sure. And then we saw the big story about Brookfield. Yes, that was kind of seismic, I, I would say. You know, the real deal, I think, was the entity that broke the story. Brookfield announced it was not exercising its option to extend the maturity date on two Los Angeles offices. The first one backs uh, CMBS debt. It is the gas company Tower and World Trade Center parking garage loan. That backs a 2021 deal. The loan is slated to mature this month and extension options could have pushed the maturity out to 2026. The interesting part about this story is uh, just as the malls were in 2017 and 18, when the concerns started to happen, this thing is firmly cash flow positive. Uh, DSCR for the first nine months of uh, 2022 was 1.94x, so almost two times coverage. The top two tenants are Southern California Gas and law firm Sidley Austin. The leases do end in 2026, so it's not imminent. So in my mind, I would have been thinking that Brookfield sits there, they collect the cash for three years, they hope to find other tenants um, just like the mall owners were, right? Let's ride this out. Let's keep this as a free option for the next three years to see if we can kind of catch lightning in a bottle and find new tenants to replace the law firm and the utility should they leave. Um, but my gut tells me that the biggest difference between this and 2017 is that the debt yield coverage is not being met and there's a huge floating rate cap that has to be purchased. And, and the borrowers may be thinking, this is throwing good money after bad. Now this is just speculation on my part, um, a lot of these properties go down this path and ultimately they get resolved with some kind of negotiation. We see that playing out in Houston with the big property in the Greenway Plaza loan. I mean, it could happen here, so we'll see. But I think it's really got people's attention. Brookfield saying, you know, 
we're not going to support this asset going further. And by the way, the other property was um, 777 South Figueroa Street. That does not back a CMBS loan. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head here, man, it's, because the debt service on this is still healthy, even at 73% occupancy. This has to be some external factors related to you know, debt yield covenants not being met, interest rate caps, and just the the high cost. I think it also speaks to maybe you know, how long-term these owners feel this office market depression could, could last in some of these markets. You know, it kind of reminds me when, when COVID first started and they said it was 14 days to slow the curve or something like that. But every time someone caught it, they had to quarantine for 14 days. So like just the mental math didn't work out. You know, it's like, okay, occupancies are down. Work from home is really impacting this. This thing's not going to cure in a couple of, of months or a couple of years. If, 23%, 24% of all CRE loans are scheduled to mature in 23 and 24. A large portion of those are office. You're going to have some of these markets that are going to be in a down cycle for the next five to 10 years. It's just math. So I think for them, maybe they're just trying to cut their losses now or potentially, like you said, get more favorable terms from the lender once they say they're not going to extend. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I can ask this question several times this week by reporters and by other players in the market that are not used to a down market in office. And the common question was, how long do these things take to play out? And for those that think these are going to play out quickly, the answer is they don't very often. This would not be surprising to see this office remaining in flux for another year. We saw that was 1740 Broadway, where the owner of that property in New York lost a big tenant, indicated they were ready to hand back the keys, and now we're 11 months hence, and the loan still remains unresolved, and the property has not been foreclosed upon. So for those that are thinking, I can buy some debt at a discount, I could buy some short-term AAA paper at 95 cents on the dollar or 90 cents on the dollar, and watch this thing get resolved and sold off very quickly and make a, a quick buck, um, it may happen here or there, but it's definitely the exception, not the rule. These things tend to linger for long periods of time. We did have two other stories of givebacks that I wanted to get to, um, one touching Vornado and one in the office space. Um, in the Vornado area, uh, this is a retail story, um, but it does touch you know that, uh, that landlord. Uh, the story comes from Jack Rogers of Globe Street. Vornado disclosed that its joint venture with Crown Acquisitions has defaulted on a $450 million non-recourse loan on street-level retail in Midtown Manhattan. The property is part of the St. Regis Hotel kind of Central Park-ish area. It's 697 to 703 Fifth Avenue. The ground floor of that hotel is by 55th Street. The loan came due in December and was not paid off. It does not back CMBS debt, but I would call this something to watch because you do have other parcels of street-level retail in the, that zip code, kind of around Trump Tower, two or three blocks is south of Central Park, where you have really high-end Cartier-type space that attracts a really high-end price. So for those thinking that that part of the market had recovered or was on the precipice of recovering, this tells a different story. Elsewhere in the giving back of space category, we had a story from the Real Deal related and Bentel Green Oak 
gave up on a Long Island City office development that they had spent a lot of money overhauling. They bought the property in 2016, had put a lot of money into it, had renovated it, was looking for uh, tenants to put it in, and threw in the towel this week, giving back the property that remained vacant after all this time. Yeah, on that deal, it looks like uh, Bright Spire Capital, I guess, is a, a REIT that provided the financing is looking to sell the non-performing loan. It's interesting as you kind of walk through that, man, is in other downturns in the marketplace, it seems like sometimes it's it's due to, you know, investors that are less savvy, non-institutional, they get over levered, they get out ahead of their skis and things come crashing down. But at least to this point in the market cycle, it feels like some of the local mom and pops syndicated type of deals um, at the local level have all been fairly conservative and still managing to work okay. And some of these larger institutional players are the ones that kind of got out ahead of themselves. And what's really interesting in that scenario is they'll give these properties back. And if they found five new properties they wanted to buy tomorrow, they could line financing up with no real hiccup. So it'll be interesting to see if this continues down that path. Um, or if we just haven't seen the, you know, the the smaller players have to have to start turning keys back yet. The beautiness or ugliness of non-recourse, depending on your uh, where you sit at the table, whether you're a lender or a property owner. Okay, we're going to do some office stories, and then we will move on to multifamily. Yes, this is the part where I talk very quickly, and here we go. Uh, Joshua Bote of the San Francisco Gate uh, Slack is ditching its headquarters for good, giving up 230,000 square feet in the Bay Area. In Atlanta, Cox Automotive has put 400,000 square feet out of space out for sublease. That property is at 3003 Summit Boulevard. The, property, the story comes from the Atlanta Business Chronicle. In Philadelphia, BizNow is reporting that Comcast is looking to shed 140,000 square feet via sublease. The firm is at 1717 Arch Street. The Hartford Current had a piece this week, Hartford awash in excess space. The piece uh, delineates six or seven properties that have more than 100,000 square feet of space available, including City Place One, which is, I think, 42% occupied at this point. In the Puget Sound area, the Gateway One office in Bellevue sold for $34 million. Why is that catching our attention? It's a big decrease from where that property last sold. It sold for almost $50 million in 2019. In New York, from Pat Ralph of The Real Deal, Columbia Property took a $11 million loss on 149 Madison Avenue. That's in Midtown South. The REIT sold the property for $77 million. It had acquired it in 2017 for $88 million. In the Silicon Valley, Santa, Santana West developer Federal Realty is no longer looking to fill its new project there with one tenant. It is pivoting to look for multiple tenants to um, fill up the Santana West project. And that's all I have on the crabgrass for office this week, thankfully. And our own Stephen Bushbaum, our research director, sat down with Ali Bowman, the director of real estate intelligence at CompStack, after our team published a joint report, upcoming office maturities, large lease expirations, and anemic space demand. 
Hi, I'm so glad to be here with all of you. So in doing this report, we wanted to take a look at what has happened over the past three years since the pandemic began and what's been driving falling office demand. And so we took a look in terms of renewing tenants, and we found that during the depths of the pandemic in 2020, the average lease term for renewing and extending tenants in particular dipped to just over four years in, in term length, about 50.6 months. And in 2022, it ticked up, but it remains below 2019 levels. It means that now in 2023, as we're uh, passing the three-year mark since the beginning of COVID, many of these deals are coming up for a renewal this year, next year, and through 2025. And it's also coming at the same time as we're encountering new economic headwinds. And that's a real concern for the office sector and what inspired the rest of this report. So yes, on the, the loan side, how that shows up in our data is we looked at the percentage of the building that was expiring within the next two years for loans that are also reaching their maturity within the next two years. So when you have the leasing risk coming at the same time as your maturity, that represents a significant underwriting risk that jeopardizes your ability to refinance into a new loan, or in the case of, say, a floating rate SASB deal that might have extension options. As we saw with the Brookfield default recently, it just might not make sense for them to pay what is now a very expensive interest rate cap and still have all of this leasing risk and potentially at the end of the day, let's put it in you know, finance and economic terms, it's a negative NPV decision. When you discount those future cash flows, what it's going to cost to lease up all of this space. And to quote a number from our report, on average, it's, it's around 20% of the building that's expiring within two years. If you're looking at just the top five tenants and the total of across the top five tenants that's expiring within the next two years. So that's a significant chunk of space that could either be downsized, reduced in full, or be very, very costly to renew and extend because of TIs, LCs, or what is a nice segue into another one of the key insights from this report. If we look at the difference between the base rent, the stated contractual rent, and then the effective rent. So Ali, can you talk a little bit about that, what's called the, the effective rent spread? So through the pandemic and the office recovery, we've been paying attention to what's been happening with rental rates for office transactions that are closing. And we found that the spread between starting, meaning the base rent of a transaction and effective rents, which includes things like TI and free rent has been widening since 2020. And this includes dramatic increases in free rent, as well as work packages where those are included in effective rents per market. So for some context, since the end of 2019, we found actually that Class A effective rents were up 1.4%, which may be surprising to some people because it shows an increase, but that speaks to some of the flight to quality and the leasing and prime trophy product that we've seen. But starting rents were up 4.5%. For Class B, it's more concerning. Effective rents were down 4.4%, but starting rents were down by less than that amount, 1.8%. So what does that mean? Landlords are less likely to decline or discount the face rent, the base rent of a building, and more willing to negotiate on TI and free rent to close deals in a very competitive tenants market. And I think a really important thing to point out here is that this is for leases signed, right, Ali? 
So we're not capturing some of the lack of leasing demand or the tenants that are walking away from buildings. And that's the difficult part to wrap your arms around. But I, th I think the, the effective rent spread, it does a great job at, at signaling some of this weakness in demand. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen, that's a great point. And that's a great thing to keep in mind when you look at Comstock's data. And here's a market I think that's very emblematic of what you just said. In New York City, starting rents are actually increased about 8% since 2019. Say, wow, that sounds crazy. How could that be happening? But effective rents, which is really the rent and the value that the landlord is receiving, is down 3.7%. And this is for Class A space. So that's including you know, the top deals that you're hearing about in the market and prime product in one Vanderbilt, Hudson Yards, other new construction across the city. So leasing is taking place in, in these buildings at high starting rents, but still the landlord is um, receiving less of the value due to uh, free rent and concessions that are part of the deal. Right. And so when we think of how this is going to impact, say, a property's financials and what kind of risk this this represents or how to even conceptualize, wrap your arms around the risk here and, and loan underwriting or evaluating if a loan's going to default at maturity. We looked at a subset of sample of loans in this report, fixed rate loans maturing in 2023. That accounts for about 15% of the total two-year office maturity uh, scheduled volume that we have in this report across the 11 MSAs. And a significant portion of these loans are full-term, interest-only, 10-year loans. And so on the surface, while they might have had, say, a total net increase in debt coverage over the past decade, what we've traditionally been trained to think, at least myself as an analyst and economist, we think, well, if you have a debt coverage ratio of around 2.0, that's, that's very healthy. You have a, a lot of excess cash flow. But when it comes to, say, a dramatic shift in interest rates upwards, some of these loans are looking at an increase in their debt cost of 40 50%. And so if, say, you obtain a new 10-year interest-only loan, what was a 1.90 debt coverage all of a sudden drops to right around that golden 1.25 threshold. And so you really have to be diligent and thinking about what truly is a healthy debt coverage ratio going into maturity, which I think, again, segues into our, our, our third point we want to highlight here. Let's roll back the clock to 2013 and think about what the office market looked like back then. Could any of us have imagined the type of risk that'd be facing class B financial district in New York office space that was built in, say, 1920? We all knew that there was some functional obsolescence there, but there was always a place for it because of the, the strong employment in Manhattan. Now, that's not so much the case. So, Ali, can you give us some insight into what the work from home and this post-pandemic shift in demand means for some of these older Class B office buildings? So, as part of this report, we wanted to dig in further into what is the, what is an obsolete office building? And that's obviously a huge topic that's in the news. Many cities across the nation are dealing with this and trying to figure out policy solutions, perhaps to incentivize or further encourage uh, conversions to residential space and how to get office tenants um, back in the office. We took a look at this and broke out buildings by building age and by class A versus B. And we found that 
There's falling effective rents in buildings built in the 1960 to 1990 range, which of course makes up the bulk of office stock in many of major markets across the country that we looked at. And it's also falling for class B buildings of nearly any vintage across many markets. These are the kind of buildings that are making headlines for being considered for conversion. I know you spoke about it on the podcast, I believe last week, that RXR, a major New York City landlord, took a look at its portfolio and is separating its buildings into film and digital, and they're calling it the Kodak project. And so that goes to show that this is a widespread idea, that there are some buildings that are going to be competitive in this new office market with less space around and some that are simply not. And I think what particularly highlights this issue of office obsolescence is if you compare New York City and San Francisco. These are two markets that are similar, but different in significant ways. And we broke out the buildings there and found that of any vintage, San Francisco is performing worse and has falling effective rents across nearly every category in terms of new construction, buildings built between 1960 and 1990, and Class B buildings. And New York City had shallower declines. And to, to put some numbers to New York specifically to highlight just how we feel important it is to dig into this, over the next two years, New York has a little over $15 billion, let's just go and call it $16 billion of the total $40.5 billion that's maturing over the next two years across these 11 MSAs and also represents about one-third of that $6 billion that's coming due just in 2023 for the fixed-rate loans. And so fortunately, I think some of the diversification that's taken place post-GFC in New York is going to play to their advantage to some extent, but it's still a very high cost metro for your employment base to work in. So we really feel like it's important to understand the industry trends, the, the employment trends in these sectors, the related, say, leasing trends, and what that translates into um, in terms of loan risk, whether it's going to be term defaults, maturity defaults, or what will ultimately survive this, this long drawn out, call it the, the office war of the century. And I don't want to neglect San Francisco since that metro has been in the headlines a lot recently with the tech rec story. So if we look at the total amount of loans coming due over the next two years in San Francisco, it's about $5 billion. What's interesting here is a significant portion of that total, 62%, are floating rate SASB deals. So there's a lot of what is usually considered the creme de la creme, as Manis likes to call it. These loans are usually trophy office buildings, class A, do very, very well, but they're also not immune to the tech wreck themselves. San Francisco definitely has been in the news for its troubles in its downtown and hasn't seen sort of the flight to quality or leasing of some of the prime space to the extent that New York City has in its market. Um, San Francisco's effective rents are falling across every category. Here's some examples. Class A space, which includes any new construction, prime trophy product, including buildings like the Salesforce Tower, effective rents are still down from 2019. And if you break that further and exclude new construction or anything trophy in San Francisco, effective rents are down by more than 5%. And it's also notable to point out the performance in Class B space. San Francisco's Class B space, you know, in the past 10 years, has traditionally taken part of the run-up in the tech sector, tech 
startups favored that kind of space, especially in San Francisco. But now we're not seeing um, leasing in that kind of space and effective rents are down by more than 17% in that sector of the market. And if you are interested in getting a copy of that report, reach out to us. We'd be happy to send it to you. Yeah, so a couple of multifamily stories here. There's a big Manhattan apartment portfolio that's heading to special servicing. This was according to the most recent February remittance data. About $270 million uh, Manhattan multifamily portfolio loan been sent to special servicing. The remittance comments were really sparse, didn't reveal the reason for the transfer. But the loan's next maturity date is August of 23 with a final maturity uh, 2024. Uh, the collateral is made up of 11 New York City apartments. They split across Manhattan's east and west sides, about a total of 600 units. DSCR for the portfolio was under 1.0x in 2019, 2020, and 2021. For the most recent 12 months ending in September of 22, I uh, did see modest gains, DSCR 1.14x. And this loan uh, backs a single borrower, part of the BX, 2019-MMP deal. So more to come on that over the coming months. The interesting thing, Lonnie, about that Manhattan one is Manhattan has been an incredibly resilient market, terrific rent growth. We've seen very few nicks in this market. And the loan doesn't have another maturity date until August. So you don't think that this is a case where they're failing a, a debt yield cap or need to buy a floating rate cap. So it's a little perplexing, you know, it's a strong market without really an explanation for why this might be happening now. Yeah, I think we'll have to wait and see what next month's comments say in terms of maybe some more, you know, reason behind this. It may be something we don't find out for a couple of months. You know, it's interesting, though, there's another big Jersey City apartment portfolio that uh, remains outstanding again in February. This is a large, you know, 200 plus million dollar deal has about six multifamily properties that are clustered across Jersey City in New Jersey. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I agree with you. The market, you know, specifically in Midtown um, or in Manhattan, and then, you know, even in Jersey City has appeared to be really stable over the last couple of quarters. Um, so to have two large portfolios of $200 million plus, you know, with some challenges uh, is is an interesting concept for the, the apartment owners here in, in the Jersey City and Manhattan uh, markets. And a special note, we have opened the TREP Education Scholarship, which is designed to support future commercial real estate professionals. If you're interested in the details, because you or yourself would like the scholarship or think someone you know might, give us a, an email at podcast at trep.com and we'll give you all the details. Applications must be submitted by April 7th. And the award is up to $10,000 of scholarship for a qualifying student. So it's a good opportunity. Cha-ching. Shout outs. Charlie C. was interested in our loan spreads report. Two of our own, Tehran and Joe D., sent us stories about the American dream. It seems that that American dream keeps putting out the hits of stories. They've, uh, they've apparently ended up in court uh, sued by creditors demanding $389 million in payment. You know, the, that dream mall story is, it's like in the old baseball games when you have a, a rain delay and they show the same thing of your team winning the World Series, you know, 35 years ago, something to kill time so the announcers don't have to talk for three hours. I feel like these reporters are out there 
if there's a slow news day, it's, oh, let's go see what's happening in the dream, right? It's, it's the story that just keeps giving and giving and giving. And it's been giving since about 2001, right? <laughs> this thing has defaulted four times. And yet here we are still talking about it. Probably will again. Lucius C had some comments about turning offices into condos. And especially after the pandemic, Noah P wanted to say that he started listening to the podcast, but we'll keep listening as this is his new favorite pod. Tom L interested in some of our multifamily markets to watch data that we put out. Suman P on Twitter loves our content and had a question for us on bank lenders and donut shorts. Someone who we've talked about on the pod on Twitter gave us a nice plug from some of the information we put out about the San Francisco office market and gave us a tweet that said indispensable at tripwire podcast great cre data so thank you to donut shorts and key lime johnny every now and then gives us a little a little poke and it looks like he's done it again manis this one aimed at you tell manis that golf balls come in a sleeve and not a set yes that was an epic fail on my part you know i had oreos on the mind thinking right after the podcast last week i was going to go body a sleeve of oreos <laughs> or I should say a set of Oreos. Um, so, I, so I got my, uh, my, my wording wrong. But I want to go back to, to Donut Shorts. So Donut Shorts was coming back to me and he said royalty free. He was coining the term office affliction, right? We've had retail apocalypse. And he said, we need a moniker for this. And he goes, I think it's office affliction. And he said, I'm able to use it royalty free if I want. But it did get me thinking about what some of the other you know, office alliterations might be. Maybe we can come up with something that is equivalent to the retail apocalypse, but not exactly the same. And with that, we will close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, comment, send it to podcast.trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.